That was lovely. You know, there are arguments about whether you should applaud in church, whether it's holy or not, and um, I have an opinion, which I'm not going to hold back from you. I think it is our spontaneous show of love, and it's wonderful to have someone share their gifts. Let me read how a six-year-old Jewish girl experienced the story of the Virgin Mary, mother of Jesus. The Virgin Mary made me nervous. When I was a child growing up in a predominantly Roman Catholic town in Massachusetts, my friends informed me that Jesus would return the same way he had come before. That is, a Jewish virgin would be his mother. Being the only Jewish virgin in the neighborhood, (laughs) I might therefore become the Messiah's mother. Consequently, during much of second grade, I was absolutely petrified that an angel would appear in my bedroom and say, Hail, Amy Jail, Amy Jill, and tell me I was going to be pregnant. At the time, this young girl doesn't know the Christmas story of the Annunciation was not central to Christianity at its beginning. Two of the four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew and Luke, record this story, and the other two don't even bother. It's not important enough to retell. The Gospel of Luke depicts greeting Mary, and as the poet Maria Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke, explains, every angel is terrifying which may be why the first thing they have to say is, do not be afraid, (laughs) as this angel surely does. So in Luke, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. Our six-year-old doesn't know the idea of a virgin birth is more ancient, much older than the 2,000-year-old version her classmates used to tease her. And it's more widespread than her Christian schoolmates and their parents are led to believe. The evidence is in the Bible itself. 
despite all the images we have from the nativity plays and scenes who only mention Mary's encounter with Gabriel, he continues to speak to Mary and tells of a second miraculous birth. He's perhaps calming her down, explaining she's not the only one in this awkward position. He is certainly placing her in an ongoing saga of the ancient Jewish God's intervention in the world. Gabriel goes on, and now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her, who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. What? There are two different miraculous births in the Christmas story, and we never mention it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. All this adoration of the purity of Mary, of her miraculous conception, and there is another woman. Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah, who are both too old to have children. How can this be? Is God a scoundrel and a cad? Is he a polygamist? In one sense, certainly yes, if we consider ourselves children of God, if each one of us is divine, in the way of being a unique expression of the unstoppable flourishing of life on earth. But the gospel here is talking about two specific miraculous births, not the splendor of humanity. That the Bible contains more than one virgin birth is a clue, or let me say that the New Testament, the Greek Testament, contains more than one virgin birth, is a clue that tales of miraculous birth are already familiar to this society. They serve a cultural purpose, as many myths retold and shaped by different cultures and eras do. Indeed, Mary and Elizabeth are not the first women who are deemed pure enough to conceive by divine intervention. Earlier in the Bible, in the First Testament, the Old Testament, Sarah The wife of Abraham bears the son Isaac. No angel, but God himself gives Abraham this news. And how did Abraham react? Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, can a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Can Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Of course, The root Jewish and Christian creation stories in Genesis have God miraculously creating man and woman from the earth, from dirt and ribs. So what the story of each miraculous birth announces is a human who will go on to do great and extraordinary things. Adam and Eve spawn the whole human race. Thank you. Through his father Abraham, Isaac becomes the beginning of the tribe of Israel and ultimately today's modern Jewish 
Christian and Muslim people. And Elizabeth gives birth to a son who becomes John the Baptist. His divine lineage is important to the legitimacy of Christianity because John is the first to baptize Jesus. Not a job for just any ordinary priestly person. And now we come to Jesus, whose miraculous birth by Mary becomes the pivotal spark for this branch of Judaism to develop into Christianity and ultimately into Unitarian Universalism. Uh, The six-year-old Amy Jill would have been less afraid for her fate had she known this trope of virgin births as well as other miraculous births is more widespread than in the Bible. The Hindu sacred texts, the Vedas, depict incredible origins of its deities. For example, in a twist made possible by this religion's tradition's acceptance of rebirth, the god Lord Vishnu announces his own rebirth. He appears to his future earthly mother, Devaki. He tells her he will be her eighth son in the form of Krishna. He comes to destroy sin in the world. So Vishnu Krishna is both the agent of conception and the offspring. Possibly the oldest account on record of this ageless tradition of immaculately born saviors is the birth of Gilgamesh written more than 4,000 years ago. So the famous Sumerian poem, The Epic of Gilgamesh, tells of a distraught young king who travels to the end of the world in search of the wisdom needed to accept human mortality and the courage to lead a more compassionate and fruitful life. His mother, Nin Sum, is a virgin mother goddess who never let a man touch her. Indeed, so sure and heavenly, so without sin. Young Amy Jill Levine continues to puzzle over the virgin birth and grows up to become Dr. Levine. She's a preeminent scholar of the Bible, of the Greek Testament in particular concerned with feminist interpretations of Mary in Christian theology. She publishes essays exploring possible different meanings of this now mythical mother. She writes, the story of Mary continues to provoke, but in much different and much more profound ways. Like her son, Mary functions as a screen on which culture projects its interests. Early proclamations concerning her sexuality contributed both to the growing interest in asceticism, in rigorous self-discipline and self-denial, and to her recognition as a new Isis, or Athena, as a new Egyptian or Greek goddess. 
The various understandings of contemporary Mary feminists demonstrate the complexity of the interpretive act. We do not come to the text as virgins, for we are all, men and women, influenced by our own subjective concerns. Some see Mary as the victim of rape, whether divine or human, with her victimization compounded by the law's mandate of the stoning of an adulterous wife. Others see an image of liberated Israel, the herald of the revolution, where the mighty are brought low, or the first of Jesus' disciples. Some see her virginity as indicating a degradation of sexuality. Others see it as a connection between Mary and the mother goddesses of antiquity. So as Unitarian Universalists, how are we to see her? It is easy for us modern, educated, rationalists to dismiss all claims of divinely begat persons as superstitious hogwash. Hold on. (coughs) We do not take the Bible literally. We do not take virgin birth literally. Despite being in the midst of an extended holiday celebrating a virgin birth, we are wise to be skeptical of the power in these stories. One reason for the skepticism is the tale removes all the messiness of procreation. It sanitizes the roles our bodies play. It erases what Audre Lorde in our second reading calls the power of the erotic. She's not simply talking about sex or sexuality, but the integration of our bodies with our minds and our hearts. For anyone who has given birth or experienced a birth, the body takes over. It's genetically programmed. This innate biology is erotic power, integral to creation. At all times, not just at birth, our bodies provide as much information as our hearts and minds. And our religious tradition tends to focus on the development of the mind, perhaps at the expense of our erotic powers and emotional powers. The same laser attention to our overwhelming physicality that happens during birth is actually what we are asked to cultivate when we practice being fully present or being mindful or meditating. It is actually working with your mind to get it out of the way so you can pay attention to everything else. And prayer is not imagined words on our lips or thoughts in our head, but an account of our whole self and of its potential in that moment. And we stand up here and sing each Sunday because the erotic power of making harmonious vibrations with our bodies as instruments binds us together. Singing 
is a potent act of creation. Another reason to be skeptical of the virgin birth story is the purity cult that develops around Mary and by all extension to all mothers and all women. Should I mention how dismissive it is of men? As many theologians and feminists explain, putting Mary, the virgin mother, on a removed, unattainable pedestal puts all women in a cultural prison of perfection. Yet why do these stories persist? They are archetypal stories that appear again and again in myths across many diverse cultures and into our present day. There is something doggedly universal in that fantastical telling. Because a miraculous birth is a creation story. It's an expression of the awe in the face of the unstoppable. It captures the feeling everyone has when they encounter an extraordinary person. Where did he get that gift? How can she do that so well? And these are the same questions we ask of ourselves. The artist may say, no one in my family can draw, but here I am making my living in art. A scientist may say, both my parents were laborers, yet here I am about to accept the Nobel Prize for chemistry. I'm the only one in my family who can fill in the blank, can roll my tongue, add numbers in my head, cook, lead a nation, overthrow a corrupt government. In every example of miraculous birth, the story's told in hindsight. The tale evolves and snowballs into the heroification of a powerful person and how they got where they are. If Jesus was a true historical figure, born in the ancient Middle East, he could have been of humble means, born in an animal stall. That part could certainly be true. What his virgin birth story does is try to explain how this man, out of millions of others, became an agent of change. What we know from biblical and historical research is that Jesus likely did grow to be a disruptive threat to the power structures of the Roman Empire. He and his followers questioned authority and tactics. And as a rebel, he was brutally and shamefully tried in a sham court and killed by the state on a cross. So all the miracles surrounding his birth and his life and his death and resurrection make his brief rebellious life become a memory able to provide ongoing power to disrupt oppressive power structures anywhere and everywhere for millennia to come. His power makes Mary his mother the, as the, she becomes the woman who gave birth to a world changer she raised a child who teaches millions how to be generous, 
to relieve poverty, to welcome the stranger, and to overthrow oppressive systems. She had to have been quite a force, too. Was Mary a virgin? For me, this detail in the story is not where the force of its lessons reside. Instead, the Annunciation by the angel captures the universal, breathtaking news any conception brings, whether planned or not, wanted or not. There is a remarkable power in the possibilities of a new life. It transforms the lives of all involved. In the instant of conception, whether she knows it or not, a woman becomes a mother. And whether she gives birth or not, a man becomes a father. They are forever changed. The whole world is changed. Nothing can ever be the same. So to briefly witness the start of a new branch of creation's expanding symmetry is to witness the miracle of erotic power. We are each given what Mary gave Jesus, a life. We have the same potential. She imposes on us a question, a question best captured by our Unitarian poet laureate, Mary Oliver. She asks in her poem, Wild Geese, tell me, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Mary reminds us how our answers matter. Do not be afraid. May it be so.